HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes, and please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, or you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is produced by Heritage Radio Network, which is a nonprofit, member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. Please help keep HRN alive and become a member today. You can go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Um, and if you do donate and you become a member and you meet me somewhere and you tell me that, I'll give you a high five or a hug. Your choice. Today is episode 41 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm delighted to have Sarah Jampel, the senior staff writer and food stylist at Food 52, with me on the show today in the studio. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Sarah. So, um, Sarah does a lot of writing at Food 52, obviously, and styling, and that's kind of what I want to cover today. But I want to start by um, just sort of asking you to describe in your own words, what does that mean? Like, when you meet someone and you say, I'm the staff writer and food stylist at Food 52, what is that? What is that? Like, what do you do? It's actually... 
it's pretty hard to describe when I'm meeting somebody what Food 52 is and what I do there because we're, we like to think of ourselves kind of as one of a kind and um, a business model that other websites and other companies aren't really approaching. So Food 52 is an online cooking community and we actually have over a million members. And when you go to the site, you can upload a recipe, you can read an article that I've written or that another editor has written or that a contributor from you know, India or Spain or China has written. And um, you can also buy products that we've vetted that are great for cooking, um, for home design. So it's really a community for sharing tips. And what I do there is I'm on the editorial team, but I also have a foot on the styling side of things. Uh So it's very confusing. And it means that every day is pretty exciting and different, which is what I love. Um, But I'm pitching stories And I'm researching them and writing them. I'm also um, editing stories that other Food 52 staff writers have written. Um, I deal with contributors, so I pitch them ideas and I edit their ideas. Um, I test and develop recipes. Um, And on Tuesdays, that's our editorial photo shoot day. So all the photos you see on the site that um, have a Food 52 photo, we've tested and then we've made it in the test kitchen and we photographed it. Um, so I have a role in that also. So it's when I meet somebody, I try to gloss over what I do and sure. not delve into a 30-second explanation. Um. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, Food 52 is complicated. I mean, I've obviously been aware of and involved in one way or another with Food 52 um, since it started. And I think the way it started, as I understand it originally, was that it was a way that Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs wanted to sort of reach out to a wider community to involve people in the writing of cookbooks. Right. Yeah, it did start as a book. Um, it started as a book, uh, two books that are uh, compilations of contest winners. So we also have recipe contests, which is just another kind of um, part of the site. But you can submit a recipe to a contest, and then we'll vet it, and we pick winners. Which I think is great. I mean, when, when it started, I felt like the, the Internet was sort of you know awash with recipes, but very hard to know if they were any good. And I felt like Food 52 is one of the first places where I could go and I could look at a recipe that was a winner or a runner-up and say, oh, man, you know, 500 people made this recipe or contributed ideas about how to make it better. And then it was finalized and tested by people who are knowledgeable. Right. And that's something that we've also kind of been having fun with in terms of just the glut of information about cooking on the Internet and something that I'm really interested in, which is how do tips become viral and are they do they work? Um can you give an example of like one, yeah. one that's gone viral that does or doesn't? Yeah. So <laughs> I wanted to figure out how to poach a lot of eggs at once um, because poaching an egg was something I didn't do successfully until I was, I don't know, 22 years old. And it took like... Some people don't do it until they're older than that. So. I think people are scared. <laughs> they are. Um, it's, not that, it's not that bad. But I did probably ruin, I don't know, six eggs in the process. But I finally figured it out. And then I wanted to know, okay, how can I do this en masse because, you know, everyone's having these eggs Benedict brunches. Sure. No, I'm just kidding. I, I would never <laughs> want to do that. But I was something I was curious about and whether you can really poach multiple eggs in one saucepan. I mean, I, I think it's a good point. I mean, even as a small, I mean, I, you know, my family is myself and my wife, Taylor, and, and our kids, Moxie and Frank. And, you know, if I want to make four poached eggs, it's, it's even hard to just do that and yeah. have them all come out for breakfast at the same it's time. It's annoying. Yeah. Um, so there's this tip. And I'm not going to mention exactly. It's all over the internet if you Google how to poach. If just Google how to poach eggs in a muffin tin. And I don't know why. I don't know why this didn't work for me every single time I tested it, and why it seems successful for other people. But basically, you crack eggs into a muffin tin. 
you pour a tablespoon of water over each one and then you bake it at 350, which that to me is a warning sign. That's a very high temperature. Sure. Water is only 212. Right. Even um, when it's fully boiling. Exactly. And then you bake it for 11 to 15 minutes. At 11 minutes, very hard to tell what's going on there because you have a layer of water on top that's been boiling and it makes it look like the white is runny. So then you leave it in, you take it out a few minutes later, and the yolk is hard as a rock, chalky, rubbery. I also tried doing this at 250 degrees for about 22 minutes, and it also didn't. It worked better, but sure. still wasn't successful. And then you're spending, you know, 25 minutes sure. poaching eggs. And you're not actually poaching eggs. You're just baking them. So huh. that that's the kind of thing where I'm like, sure. I don't understand how how this gets circulated and it's kind of fun in the same way that we can kind of vet and curate recipes to be able to do that with tips and say this tip just doesn't it has a lot of hype but i'm not sure right. how well it works i wonder if that's a question that's ever come up on uh, on dave arnold one of my my co uh, mm. another host here on uh, on heritage radio on cooking issues i wonder if he's ever covered the poaching egg issue or if kenji uh, Kenji Kenji has a great system, which it's not surprising because he sure. is a brilliant scientist. Yep. But he uses um, a steamer basket oh. inserted in the water, which kind of catches your eggs. And that way I've been able to do six at once. Got it. And you just lift the steamer basket out of the water. And, and then all, they're all pushed. Yeah. Because the other thing that I've seen, I mean, as, as a collector of antique cookware and tools oh, cool. what i actually have um it's it's a it's a part of my collection i have a sort of subset of my anti cooking tool collection of things made in new york city and i have mm-hmm. a made in brooklyn egg poacher that's actually for three eggs and it basically is a perforated pan with three rings that come down Very over cool. the perforations but it's on a spring mm-hmm. so you would crack the eggs into it and then lower that into your pan oh interesting and then it would poach and then you pull it out and then you lift sort of the spring and it releases all three of them wow. so that you know i suppose you could make that bigger or something you know, mm-hmm. that's at least three yeah. doesn't quite solve my problem of needing four all right it gets me gets me three quarters <laughs> of the way there um so as far as styling the food, I mean, you know, you obviously do a lot of things at Food 52. Um, as far as styling the food, I'm curious just to, to know a little bit about that. I mean, I feel like at least in a, in a vague sense, I feel like, you know, you, you hear about or read about the ways that advertisements are shot. Yeah. So like putting soap in the beer to keep it foamy for the photograph and things like that. Do you guys employ any of those kinds of... We don't. Not cheats exactly, but... <laughs> we actually don't. Um which is fun because it means we can eat all the food that comes out of our test kitchen. But we don't do anything that makes the food inedible. Um, Sometimes we add salt to beer to make it foam, which works sometimes. It really depends on the type of beer and the type of salt. I had a friend that used to add salt to beer to drink it, so, I mean, you can still consume it. (laughs) Yeah, I've added also added coffee and soy sauce to beer to just make it a darker color. (laughs) Um, But that's about as far as we go in terms of kind of contaminating anything with outside ingredients. Um... We don't want to mislead any of our readers and the people who cook from our recipes, and we worry that if we change the color of something, if we make it super shiny, super crispy, um, it's not going to look like what the recipe is, and you're going to be confused. And that's happened to me before when I'm cooking a recipe from a website, and I'm just frustrated that my final product doesn't look the same. Sure. Um, And in that sense, we also try to be pretty accurate um, when we're cooking to a recipe, so we read about the garnishes. We read about the cooking technique. If something doesn't work, we will, um, and it's a user-submitted recipe, we'll reach out to the user and walk through it with them instead of just changing it and not editing the recipe because 
um, in the end, the photos are important, but it's about the utility of the recipes. Sure. What percentage of the recipes that you shoot on a given Tuesday are user-submitted versus developed in-house? Um, we have regular contributors like Alice Medrich, who is a fabulous baker and prolific cookbook writer, and Jenna Hamshaw, who is a vegan blogger and cookbook author. Um, and they develop their own recipes for us. And then I would say probably half the recipes that we're shooting are user-submitted. Um, yeah, and that really changes how you can style it because you have these instructions from somebody. I mean, all the time, unless you're shooting your own recipe, you have specific instructions that you want to abide by and respect. Um, So it can be hard deciding what liberties you can take to make something look delicious and what you can't. Right. And I think we've started to kind of err on the side. I think what I kind of say about food styling is if you know what food looks when food looks good and if you kind of trust your sense of this looks delicious this looks like something i'd want to eat that's like 95 percent of what it takes to be a good food stylist um so i think we take liberties when we're like yeah we would put olive oil on this dip and like we would put some flaky salt on it and it's going to make it look better sure and i think that you know generally speaking i would hope that the community who's cooking that recipe would do the same you know, I mean, I, I definitely <clears throat> try I, or try to think of, you know, if I have a recipe in front of me and I use it and I think something like, you know, like, oh, this would be better with more salt or with some pepper or with, you know, more olive oil. I'll just sort of do it. I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's not actually realistic that most people would. But yeah, it is. We have a test kitchen chef who helps us a lot because we do a lot. We shoot a lot of recipes in one day. Um, so whereas some food stylists are like cooking a recipe all the way through, then taking it to set styling it and then like cleaning up and starting over we work with the um kitchen team so that we can do as many shots as we do in a day but he i mean he's a trained chef he's worked in restaurants so he'll read a recipe and say like well i wouldn't really do it this way like it's much smarter to do it this way and that's really great and valuable and um information that i want to kind of get from him for articles and for tips but when you're cooking someone's recipe and photographing it you can't Right. change everything and a part like one of the beautiful things about food 52 is not every recipe says that you need to steam your potatoes this way like people do it different ways and you can kind of learn from individuals directions about their cook- cooking quirks and different ways to do it so sometimes the tendency is to always streamline things and make them better right um but we also want to like preserve the integrity of the recipes um you're a vegetarian right Yes. So does that present any challenges for you in food you have to style? It's extremely difficult. Um, Like I said, knowing when something looks good is probably the hardest part of food styling. And I just feel like I don't quite have the sense all the time of when a piece of chicken doesn't look. Chicken is the hardest Mm. for me because like. Chicken's, chicken's, chicken's hard in, chicken's hard in general. I mean, you know, we've, we've done a number of, uh, of video shoots and, and, and photo shoots of techniques and things at the Brooklyn mm-hmm. Kitchen. And honestly, as someone who is not a vegetarian, chicken is super hard. We tried to do a video of breaking down a chicken, and it just looks gross. Yeah, it just doesn't look that good, no, it and it doesn't cooperate. Like, its skin shrivels and shrinks. Yep. Um, there are all these, like, weird tendony things. I don't know how to break one down. I also don't know the portions that people eat. That I find really hard. I styled, I was styling some beef kebabs yesterday, and I was like, I just don't, I'm going to have to ask somebody to tell me how much of this is a normal amount for a single right. serving right. because I don't even know. Um, so I'm normally, we have 
Kristen McGlory, who is our creative director and author of Genius Recipes, um, which is a great cookbook. She is our chicken expert. She has a very keen sense of when chicken looks good, so I always call her in for a chicken check. Awesome. Um, yeah, which I desperately need. <laughs> um, what percentage of the recipes, or, or do you have a sense of, you know, in the in the recipes that are showing up on Food 52 right now, are they leaning one way or the other as far as containing meat or being vegetarian or towards a certain type of cuisine? That's Mediterranean really seems question. really hot right now. Ottolenghi's books sell really well for us, so my sense is that people are interested in that kind of cooking. Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, the trend with cookbooks and recipes is vegetable heavy and restaurants like that that seems to be getting the most attention in food media these days and what our readers are interested in um and also they're really interested in like quick 30 minute weeknight meals which makes sense sure. like Absolutely. real people Everybody's have busy. yeah totally right. um we're gonna take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors and when we come back um sarah i want to talk a little bit about uh why you've been called the scoby queen great <laughs> This is Torchlight by Rectech. We'll be right back. program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today I'm speaking with Sarah Jampel from Food 52. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, Sarah being a vegetarian and being a food stylist and some portioning stuff. Um, but I wanted to to move into uh, something that I read about you, Sarah, on a profile that was done on Food 52 about you, um, was that in the office you're known as the Scoby Queen. Yes. So can you talk a I little bit about that? I think it's since evolved. I hope I have kind of shirked that title. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Being called a queen seems like a yeah, pretty good title. I don't, I don't know if I'd want to be the queen of the Scoby. Fair. But maybe. It's pretty fascinating. Um, so I kind of go through these phases at work, which is nice because we have the opportunity to sort of write about whatever we want in whatever capacity, as long as it's going to be interesting to a wide range of people. But I kind of went, got into this phase of making of brewing kombucha and learning about what that was like, which it's actually really easy um, if you take a few precautions um, against flies and mold. But... I was brewing in the office, and it was kind of getting out of control. I didn't quite know how to separate my scobies. Um, for listeners out there who don't know what a scoby is, it's a symbiotic colony of yeast and bacteria that ferments um, the sugar and the sweetened tea that you put it in, which makes kombucha. 
But every time you brew kombucha, the SCOBY multiplies and you end up with this giant stack of SCOBYs if you don't give them away. And I basically was collecting them all over the office. Um, I also had a bit of an explosion experience. A bottle exploded. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was, yeah, I was really taking over parts of the office <laughs> for my own doing, which was maybe not the most professional, but very fun. So do you still have kombucha growing in the I office? I do. Fermenting? Not in the office. I decided to take it into my own home. Got it's it. also, I think kombucha is more at risk for becoming contaminated with flies when it's around a lot of food hmm. because you kind of have flies around the food. Sure. Um, so in my apartment, I don't cook quite, it's not the same quantity of food as produced in the Food 52 test kitchen. So yeah. it seems like actually a safer environment for my SCOBY, which is doing well now. <laughs> Got it. Um, and do you have other projects that are going on? I mean, are there other, do other people in the office have fermentation projects sort of happening around? Um, our editor, Caroline Lang makes yogurt, oh, nice. um, which is super easy. And she kind of introduced us to that. And she also makes shrub. Um, which is delicious. And I've gotten into sourdough. That's my latest thing. Cool. Um, so I'm keeping my starter in the office so that I can feed it regularly. Um, what's your, what's your favorite thing to make with your starter? Like, do you have a specific bread that you make regularly or I've been making bread from Ken Forkish's book, Mm. um, and just really trying to get that down and then moving along. I found it really hard to keep up with my discard it's overwhelming because every time you want to bake bread, then you're left with all this discard. So yeah. you're baking two projects at once, yeah. and it's just, it's a little too much for me to handle. Yeah, I've been keeping a sourdough alive that I captured in uh, on the coast of Maine last wow. summer. And one of the things that I've found that I do with it sometimes with the with the discard, because I, I actually don't have a lot of time to bake with it. So I, at least once a week, will pull it out of the fridge and feed it overnight mm-hmm. and let it, you know, keep it active. And then I'll take the discard, but... Often I'll do something really simple and fast. Like you can do, you can mix it into pancakes, yeah, which is super easy. Um, I I found and sort of uh, changed around a recipe for naan. Mm, that yeah, you mix I've done it, that too. Mix it with yogurt uh, and mm-hmm. with shallots, and you just let that ferment for the day, and then you can bake it off at night. Yeah, so. I've made sourdough biscuits, which were good. Pizza crust. It's it's just like the yeah. list is going on sure. and on every it's week. I have thing. two things yeah. to bake. Of course, it's, yeah, it's another it's yeah. another thing to keep alive and to remember. Yeah, it is really it's a really fun project. I think I like tinkering and experimenting, and it's sourdough is the ultimate in that yeah. practice. Absolutely, for sure. Um, I wanted to ask if you have any tips for people um, who are putting, you know, obviously the Internet is full of food pictures. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say cats might be the only other thing that there are probably more pictures of. Um, If you follow Sarah on Instagram at Sarah Jampel, you will see pictures of both. I notice you have some pictures of your cat Mochi on there. Both passions of mine. (laughs) Uh, But do you have any tips for people if they're going to take pictures of their food? I mean, I I personally, I, I struggle with it because... It's obviously the business that I'm in. Right. But I also, like, when I look around a restaurant, if I'm really enjoying myself and I see everybody taking I hate to pull out my phone and, like, take a picture of the food. Yeah. I I think restaurants also, like, you're not going to get a very good picture of your food unless it's point. daytime. Um, and that's the biggest tip is to use natural light. Um, it's really hard to get a nice-looking picture of food under fluorescent lights. And if you can't use natural light, then the biggest tip is to use one light source and have it coming from an angle. And then you can try to get those highlights and shadows that really make food look good. Um, so natural light is a big tip of mine. I mean, do you do you go through any kind of mental process when you think about something you're going to put up on your Instagram feed? Do you think about, you know, whether it's something mm-hmm. you've put up before or, you know, because sometimes I see, you know, I mean, I guess it depends on the, the, the business people are in or sort of why they're putting it up. But I sometimes feel like people are posting the same kind of picture. 
a lot? Yeah, it's funny. Instagram, it seems like there's a formula to a good, like a popular Instagram photo. It's yeah. overhead. It's of something in a bowl. It's very like clean and yeah. white. Or it's like super hypey food porn, cheese yeah. melting everywhere, yeah. a donut somewhere in the picture. Right. Or it has a cute kid in the picture. I mean, yeah. I find for whatever reason, the pictures that I put up, like any, even like if I <laughs> make something amazing or it's sourdough or I have this crazy fermentation or a really cool video, whatever it is, if I put up a picture of my kids, it gets way more likes. Yeah. It's kind of insane. It's kind of sad, actually, <laughs> to me. It's like there's not much room for diversity right. uh, and experimentation. It's kind of like people have found the formula that works and they use it. And I'm guilty of it, too. But it yeah. works so easily. It's kind of crazy. Yeah how you can just predict when something will do well. And I think the same is true on Food52's Instagram. Like, it's very easy for us to know, like, this picture's going to get this many, about this many likes, and this other one's going to get so many fewer. Hmm. Just by nature of it. But you but you put up the one that gets fewer because it's something you feel committed to as something that should go up in the feed? Yeah. Just for maybe, like, a various reason. Like, we sure. ha- are having a summer camp week on Food52, so, like, a lot, probably 80% of our articles are about summer camp, and we posted a photo of some of the editors shining flashlights in their faces and we're like this isn't gonna no one's right gonna go crazy over this but it's like fun and it preserves our personality and i think that's something that we really struggle with or i i definitely struggle with it is the internet feeling really the same everywhere especially in food media like this website feels like that website feels like this website all the headlines are the same and they're all really um vying for clicks and so it does sometimes feel nice to put up an article or an Instagram photo that is just there for the sake of being there and for preserving your whimsy and your personality and your spunk and not being um, the thing that's going to get you a million page views just because it's about how to combine avocados and eggs in fi- 500 ways. Right. <laughs> um, did you go to summer camp? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I went to Camp Seafair in North Carolina. It was a YMCA sailing camp. Nice. And it was great. Do you have any specific food memories? Um, yeah, we had this thing called Oreo pie, which I actually wrote about recently. You can find the recipe on Food 52, but, um, I just, I remember the Oreo pie, but mostly I remember people going berserk over it, like commotion I've never seen in my life over food. People standing on the dining hall benches, cheering, screaming, crying. (laughs) Was it a surprise? Like would it come out in the dining hall? Yeah, it was was a surprise. So it really kept you on your toes about whether you're going to get Oreo pie. Um, I remember I'm not I'm from Baltimore, so not deep in the South. And I remember hush puppies, biscuits, fried chicken, all things that I wasn't familiar with um, being from Baltimore. Nice. Um, Yeah. I mean, the I went to summer camp. I went to uh, Camp Natchez in Mm -hmm. West Copake, New York, which is no longer there. But uh, the food memory that I have from that is clandestine pizza. So the food was terrible. Uh camp but our counselors when they would have a night off would go into town and they would get you pizza and we would we would basically beg them (laughs) to bring back pizza for us and we'd have to pay for it but we would be you know we'd all be like asleep in our bunks because one counselor couldn't go and they'd come in and they'd like wake everybody up and be like the pizza's here yeah and then we'd all eat pizza like you know it felt like the middle of the night i think it was probably like nine thirty or something we had midnight snack once a session and they would wake us up in the middle of the night and give us junk food which is I mean, it's great if you're, like, nine years old. Counselor, it sounds like a terrible (laughs) idea. Yeah. Yeah. In retrospect, not a great idea. You mentioned Baltimore. Do you... uh, Is there anything regionally specific to Baltimore that you feel like you can't really get in New York, food-wise, that you miss? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I don't eat crab. So that's kind of the thing. And I feel... I did go through a period of eating seafood, but I didn't try a crab during that time. So maybe I need to 
like return to that um but there are these things called burger cookies which still have trans fat in them so that's just like a funny vestige of a time sure um but they're a cakey cookie with about like a two inch thick layer of chocolate fudge on top and they're very good and you can only get them in baltimore actually i'm sure you can mail order them now now you can yeah yeah no but that's you know i feel like that's that's something that has been a little bit lost with the ability to mail order everything is that you know i remember you know the first time first time i drove cross country was i mean i'm gonna date myself here but you know was like more than 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and i remember there being all these regionally specific foods that now i guarantee you i could find online and just have shipped instantly and i think that's starting to happen with international foods too just like preserving some sort of exclusivity and it's like great that things are democratized now and like you can see pictures like i was looking at pictures of yemeni bread yesterday and being like hmm how can i make this bread but you know probably even 10 years ago, I wouldn't have even been able to know that it existed right. without going there. But in some cases, things like that, especially are best eaten fresh. I mean, yeah, you know, I, uh, I think I talked about it in fact on this program a week ago, but you know, crab rolls on the coast mm-hmm. of Maine are one of my favorite foods. And you just, unless the crab meat is super fresh and the crab meat is, you know, it, it's incredibly delicate and spoils very fast. You can't even, I mean, I've tried, you can't even really get it <clears throat> from Maine to New York if you're driving that same day yeah. and have it last, even if it's packed in ice. Well, and so, you know, it's such a, that's one of those things that I feel like it's not even worth, I don't even try to make it or eat it here. Might yeah. as well just eat it if you're there. There's also something about like the ceremony of eating it that I'm sure would die if you ate it every day. I feel like that was part of Oreo pies allure. Like it only happened twice a summer. Like we never knew when it was going to be. If we had had it every night, even if I could make it here and eat it all the time, it wouldn't be as great. Sure. And, and, and the freedom of, of being at summer camp and all those things. If we had it right here, right now, it probably wouldn't taste as good. Yeah. I mean, maybe it would, but (laughs) not quite as good. Uh, well, we're, uh, we're, we're reaching the end, but I did want to touch on, um, at Food 52, you guys have a hotline. Yeah. Right? And that's a, an old school, like, dial 1-800-FOOD-52 to ask it's, questions? It's an internet hotline, but we actually, the editors get emailed when the questions go unanswered, so it might as well be a call line because, like, I'll wake up at, you know, 7 a.m. and I'll have eight emails of unanswered hotline questions Whoa. Um, just to notify me. But not The editors don't always respond, but you will get a fast response. And um, during Thanksgiving, we did an under 10-minute response wow. from an editor. Um, so we were all on call, and it was fun. We were kind of, like, competing to answer the questions <laughs> fastest, and they were almost all about, like, help, I didn't defrost my turkey. That was basically that every was the number question. One. Or how long do I cook this turkey for? Um, I mean, what are your uh, – I mean, from from that, do you have any, like – favorites like either either questions that you know are somewhat outlandish or questions that are really bona fide and people ask a lot but you feel like is something people should understand or know about they really run the gamut and that's what's so fun about it so we had a question recently um someone looking for popcorn recipes during the republican national convention which i just like it's great to have some personality in there even if we don't always delve into politics on the site um and then a lot of food safety questions people leaving things out accidentally wondering if they can still eat it um and people will you can mark your question as urgent so if you're in the middle of a food 52 recipe or any recipe on the internet and you need to know can i make this substitution um help this isn't cooking and it's been an hour and a half then people will answer it so it's it's pretty great as a resource yeah no i mean it, it sounds it sounds really cool i mean one thing of i mean i've definitely done that i've been in the middle of something and realized i don't have whatever is mm-hmm. called for um and i'll sort of look at the internet and see if i can find an answer but that's still not 
getting an answer from yeah, a it's person. Yeah, like guesswork. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's really great that, uh, that you guys offer that. You mentioned food safety, and we were talking a little bit mm-hmm. about that before the program when we were uh, before we started. And you know, do you think that um, by um, do, do you think that people are um, are confused by food safety? Yeah, I think it's really it's one of those. Hmm. I think that a lot of what's interesting to I'm I really like science. What's interesting to me about science writing is kind of how people can take all those complex ideas and distill it into something that's still true and accurate, but that can be understood by someone who doesn't know science. And I think that's kind of a little bit of what food safety is missing. And sure. sometimes what we try to do in our articles on Food 52 is to kind of give you the need to know true facts so that you're not scared, but that you know the information that is smart for a home cook to know and I yep. think that's missing a little bit so yeah it seems like people are confused about those questions and it's good to offer the hotline as a place that they can ask them that being said a lot of the answers come from community members who might be just as confused so you kind of have to look through it um, and take it with a grain of salt sure sure I mean do you you know do you have any um, any sort of like general words of wisdom about food safety or how people can sort of judge for themselves or should we look out for articles from you in the future about that? We should look out for articles from me in the future. Um, I mean, obviously I want to say that if you're worried about it, you should be, you should err on the side of caution. Of course. At the same time, I think like you can call in a friend and ask like sit the room and see what they think about it. For sure. I think people are pretty sometimes it feels like people are really paranoid about it and other times it feels like I mean you mentioned an anecdote before that someone who dropped a dropped a, some tomatoes on the floor and threw them all away yeah instead of washing them right and sure I mean like if I dropped some tomatoes like in a gross New York City like you know in the in the street yeah you, you know in the curb I might throw them away yes but if I just drop them on my kitchen floor I'm probably yeah. just going to rinse them off. For me, it's more of an expense thing. Like sure. if I spent $5 on a little carton of tomatoes from the market and I drop them on the ground in New York, I'm probably still going to wash them and eat them. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, the thing that I always say to people is, you know, the nose knows, right? Yeah. And that even though, you know, there are plenty of things that you may not want to eat, you may not like kimchi. And certainly I hear that I've never had it, but I hear that like fermented tofu is a, a smell and something yeah. that's very hard for people to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so if that doesn't smell good to you, you shouldn't eat it. And that's sort of my basic, you know, the basic thing that I always tell people is if it smells bad or even if it tastes bad, if you taste a little bit and it's gross, throw it out. I mean, like tasting a little bit of spoiled milk, you'll know it's bad. It's not going to kill you, but you'll know it's bad. So you should pour it out. Yeah. I would say be careful about botulism. Be careful about what you're preserving. For sure. And know that you're preserving it well. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I definitely with canning, follow trusted recipes. Make sure that you, your food is acidified and cooked properly. It's Um, like there are places that you can tinker in recipes and places where you really need to follow the expert's advice. Yeah. (laughs) Canning is one of them. Absolutely. Um, Well, thank you, Sarah. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Do you have any other, any projects coming up, any articles coming out that you want to mention to the listeners? Um, I'm working on something about how to judge whether food is fresh and when it can be salvaged. And that will be coming out before the end of the big summer produce season. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening today to Feast Your Ears. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, who's my producer here, and to David Tattashore for engineering the show every week. And you can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow me on Instagram at TheFoodBaller. Talk to you next week.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.